Good morning. Hey, everybody. Let's make sure we're all there. Hey, welcome to Critical Q&A number 441 <laughs> live. Good morning, everybody. And um, hey, hey, there we are. All the usual suspects and critics in the comments. Very happy to see you guys here this morning. Um, and I saw your comment here, Love Food Kitchen. Let me see if this is going to come up for us or not in the thing here. Uh, maybe not. Nah, okay. Don't know why. What about that one? Oh, wait. Oh, are my little... Oh, that's why. There we go. Got to get the chats up on the window. That's why. Sorry, guys. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that support. There's, uh, there we go. There's the comment I was trying to throw up on the screen. Um, I'm sad you didn't even attempt a pre-recorded episode this week. Yes, I understand. I, um, I think, you know, in response to the feedback that I'm getting from you guys, and purely in response to that, so if you have any other feedback you want to give me in terms of the formatting and, uh, and what I'm doing with my Q&A shows every weekend... Uh, I'm all ears. I am here to do, you know, put my content out here for you so you like it and want to watch it and get something out of it. So, um, and I, you know, I can only stretch myself so far, but I do want to do what is wanted. So, if y'all, um, you know, so I'm switching kind of this thing over to more of a live every week because that seems to be what is the most, you know, most uh, popular feedback, and um, and then I've got some pre-set questions from the queue, and I've got those ready for this week as well that we will also be jumping to as we go through your live questions. Uh, speaking of, let's go ahead and get the um, let's go ahead and get the Q and A part up here. Let me see if I can. All right. Always got to mess around with this a little bit. Now, what is this? Live chat, top chat, yeah, yeah. Live, live chat, that's what I want. Where's, oh, there it is. There it is. Start a Q&A. All right, good. Please put your questions under this comment so I can see them. And we will start the Q&A. So... I am now. I'm now seeing mainly uh, the the questions that you put under the comment I just put in the chat box, called "Please put your questions uh, under this comment so I can see them," <laughs> and I will uh, start addressing those as they come up in the chat box here. Um, excellent, and thank you uh, again for the celebration of the memberships. You guys are awesome. Um, okay, good. Yeah, here we go. Questions start coming in. Xion got one up there already. Um, I wanted to, um, do two things. Thing number one I wanted to do is, um, I wanted to go back to here. Where's my little, let me see if I can, there we go. There, let's take that off of there for a second. Okay, good. Um, yeah, it's been weird weather lately, hasn't it? been very strange um yeah love the live format hybrid yeah good okay good yeah that's exactly what we're going to be doing this week 
Okay, let me get myself together here. So first thing is um, I'm, um, I wanted to put a plug in for the Critical Conversation show. You know, every Friday night, I got I to gotta, I gotta tell everybody about, about a couple things. Make sure you all know about what I put out here on my channel and on my other channel. Um, so every week we do a Friday live show. And then we do a Saturday podcast, and then we do this show on Sundays. So you got three shows um, every week. And then Mondays, we usually do, um, with Tony Ortega, we do a After Scientology Straight Up and Vertical. Um, so four shows regular, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, on a routine you know, basis on this channel. And, um, and each show gets you know varying degrees of watching, and yet I love every one of them and want to make sure you guys know about them and check them out because we cover some really important stuff on our Friday shows. And I, th and I don't know what it is that, um, you know, maybe a call-in show isn't the thing. Maybe I should just cut out the call-in part of that. But I was really hoping, you know, we've been doing it for almost two years and I was really hoping I'd get a lot more, you know, call engagement during that show, to be honest. And uh, it hasn't really happened, and that's fine. Maybe it's just not the format that's wanted, although people seem to like to tune in to talk uh, or hear about the subject matter that we're going over. And we cover a lot of cult stuff, and, and I think important stuff there. And I really, that, this, last, this show last Friday was really personal to me. And um, boy, ugh, ugh, and all that cult recovery stuff. So I just wanted to put that out there. Um, you know, to encourage you all to check those out. And then the um, podcast this week was an interview with uh, Cass Folletti, Theta Novus, that I thought went great. And we got a real nice, uh, very recent look at uh, Scientology recruitment and the shenanigans those those folks get up to. Um, it's really Keystone Cops with, with Scientology these days. I mean, they're just so stepping all over themselves. It's really quite pathetic watching how Scientology operates. Um, Okay, so let's now, now we got our critics on board here, and I've got my soda ready to rock. Let's go ahead and start getting to your questions. And please do um, throw more. I've only got one in the, in the queue here so far. So let's take this one up. Xion, what's your favorite sci-fi movie, Battlefield Earth Excluded? Um... Hmm. Hmm. Favorite sci-fi. Boy, I'm probably going to forget something, but I mean, what comes to, oh boy, so many movies come to mind of a sci-fi genre. I mean, obviously, Star Wars. Um, Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Um... Alien is more of a horror movie. Sci-fi movie. See, I, I, what I wish I could say in response to this is The Expanse, which is a limited series, a, or a, 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 a series on, um, was it on Prime now? It was on, it was on FX originally, or uh, I don't know where you can find The Expanse now, actually. Um, but it's an amazing, amazing sci-fi show. But it's not a movie. So 
Um, so, because that's my top sci-fi property ever, right? It's so good. So it's just a great set of stories and characters and stuff. Um, yeah. But there have been some really interesting social commentary sci-fi movies too that I've really, that are, God, my mind is just all over the place this morning. So I guess, because I think about older things like silent running and stuff, like, you know, like there's some really interesting sci-fi movies back in the back in history too, as well as, uh, as well as, you know, current stuff is like so-so. I mean, you know, Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon is not exactly great sci-fi. Yeah, I'm going to, you know, I think I'm going to fall back just because it's the answer that came to mind first before anything else, before I started thinking about it. Uh, Star Wars. So, yeah, there's my answer. Star Wars. And <laughs> definitely not Battlefield Earth. Um, okay. Yeah, and, uh, oh, Blade Runner. Yeah, ooh. That is, um, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, Blade Runner is quite good. Um, Gattaca. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, now, again, I'm only, that's the only question I've gotten so far in the queue. Now, let's go ahead and switch over to um, the, uh, here we go. Let's switch over there and pull up our first preset question. So here we go, Andrew J. And this is wise related. This is actually a two for one. I got two people asking um, similar stuff and so I put them together here. So Andrew J, a successful client of mine said, they'd help me with my business if I complete a few business courses in the church. Reluctantly, I obliged. And surprisingly, they've been pretty helpful. And general principles of business are taught. The problem is, they're constantly pushing more on me, such as the video on sauna and niacin purification, and to do more courses. The sales tactics are quite pushy. Are they going to be contacting me for life? What would you advise to do from here? Thanks. And Robert Tobias asks, I have viewed a great deal of content that has referenced Hubbard Business Technology through Wise Sterling Management, mostly marketed to chiropractors, dentists, etc. But no one says exactly what is taught during these expensive practice boosting seminars. Perhaps you can elaborate. Yes, perhaps I can. So let's go ahead and cover what is the... Um, what it, oh, now make sure, guys, I see some people putting comments in the regular comment section stream here. Make sure you get them under the question I put up on the live Q&A. We have a live Q&A going right now where I'm not necessarily paying attention to the regular comment section chat box. You got to put them under that comment I posted so that I can see them in my Q&A chat box. Okay, so the model of admin know-how. The model of administrative know-how, or admin. Admin in Scientology is a shortening for administration, administrative, anything having to do with that, having to do with the uh, flows, lines, and organization, and running, and management of a company or organization, right? Administration. Um, the model of admin know-how is a program of Scientology principles that have been put together in a sequence in order to teach anybody, any business, anywhere, whether it's one-man business or a thousand-man business or a hundred-thousand-man business, 
Um, the model of admin know-how has uh, a step-by-step series of phases you go through uh, implementing various aspects of L. Ron Hubbard's policies as how he says to run a Church of Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard wrote thousands of policy letters or had written and authorized thousands of issues laying out the day-to-day, here's how you run an organization. Whether it is the basic every policies that apply to all staff members just because they work at the at, in the organization um, or specific policies for specific areas of the organization and different functions and parts of it and when you lay all this out for somebody who's never heard of any of this before or doesn't understand or hasn't done much in way of business or business classes or anything like that, it sounds really impressive. And it sounds like it would be very useful, workable, uh, even revolutionary material to put your business there and get it going and get it operating. And of course, when you are sold this model of admin know-how program, you are shown a lot of testimonials and statistics that show graphs with numbers going up, 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 up. And they're not necessarily all false statistics, but they are definitely, definitely exaggerated. <laughs> and a lot of them are kind of false, right? Because they'll show you the good, but they won't necessarily show you the bad, stuff like that. Um, so... The program, the phases of the program are basically, there's six of them. So I thought it might be uh, interesting to walk through them. Um, just uh, check in here. Ah, there we go. Now we get people putting them in the, in, the, in the right place. Excellent, guys. Thank you for finding that. Okay. Um, just Here we go. Organizing board. The very first thing. I think these are in sequence. I think I'm following them in sequence of how this gets put in, uh, how these are implemented in any business. And so, so here you are, a doctor, a chiropractor, a dog owner, you know, a vet, uh, you know, veterinarian, um, any business, anything, a postcard mailing company like in Florida, there's, there's one. Um, any, any organization can have these principles applied to them. So the first thing is an organizing board. And if you're familiar with Scientology, then you know that it has a very special layout of how it organizes its, its organizations. It's a seven division system uh, with the first major division being division seven at the far left of the organizing board, the executive division, and the executive division sort of runs the rest of it. And then you have divisions one through six that, that deal with different functions of an organization, whether it's hiring and firing, or mailings, or sales, treasury functions, um, the production division of the organization, no matter what it is you're producing, that function goes into division four, the production division. Quality control and staff training falls under division five, and any sort of public outreach, new sales, new customers, anything that's bringing that kind of thing in is division six. So you lay out your company, you reorganize your business or you organize it in the first place against this seven division pattern. And that's the first phase of the model of admin know-how program, right? So you get your things organized. And it, again, looks and sounds like a system that makes sense. 
there are holes and there are problems and the command structure of the organizing board isn't necessarily a really optimum thing when you start practicing and implementing it. People start bumping into each other and there can be issues. It can be made to work and you can run an organization on that system if that's all you do. If you don't bring in the rest of the Scientology stuff, you know, it's a way of organizing things. Um, I'm not going to say that the organizing board is satanic or is inherently evil or something. It's a system of organizing. It's not the best one. It's not the most efficient one. And I think people who have a lot of experience with it can speak to its problems more so than if you just kind of look at it and go, well, it looks like it makes sense. A lot of things in Scientology look like they make sense. That's the problem. <laughs> okay. The next thing, we're not going to I'm not going to harp on this too. I'm going to want to take a whole hour breaking all this down, but there are but the next step is the communication system where you set up a, a system of of of, of what are called lines and terminals. So, an organization consists of lines and terminals, right? Terminals are people or individuals or things that can give and receive communication. And lines are the things on which communication is sent. Whether you're writing a dispatch and it goes on to a basket and that basket, somebody comes and picks it up and puts it into a, a, a central communication system. And then people can distribute the communications through the comm system and go to the various divisions of the organization. And Division 1 deals with this, the flow of communication in and around the organization. Putting that whole system in place, who is supposed to be talking to who? What are the routing lines? If I, if I want to write a, a, a question or an order to someone, how do I format the document? How does it get to them? How do they get the order done and then report compliance to my order? That's all part of what's called the comm system or communication system. And that's the second thing that goes into place. Third thing it looks like here is staff training. You start getting the staff trained on this system. You can put it in place, but if nobody understands it or uses it, it doesn't work. That's no matter what system you're using, that's for sure. So staff training is really, really important for this too. As they say here, employee training, I'm just looking at the wiseeastus.org website, by the way, reading all of this to you guys. So the staff training here, um, here, in fact, I'll, uh, I'll throw this. Um, I think I can. See if I can. Oh, I can't. All right. Sorry. I thought I could throw the link into the chat, but when it's in Q&A mode, I'm, it doesn't look like I'm able to do that. Um, okay, so let's go back to that site and finish this answer. So staff training, employee training is the heart and soul of a successful business, it says. Having a trained team is a major asset and a fail-proof formula for success. As a company or corporate member, you can train your staff on a great number of Hubbard College courses and workshops, as well as the new Effective Management Associations courses. Uh, okay, online courses they have now, right? So WISE is is certainly pimping themselves out for a modern world. <laughs> okay, the last three things, let's, let's go through these uh, quicker, is management by statistics. This is the step. 
phase four, it looks like, is the step where you're going to start putting in statistics and graphs. And this is the point where things start going really off the rails because the way Scientology organizes itself is one thing, but how it runs itself is another. And this is where the abusive nonsense really starts coming in hard. There can be organizational issues or problems or confusions with those other phases or those other steps, but this is where organizations are taught to become authoritarian madhouses. Um, is from the statistics stuff because you go you go on to a weekly statistics system everybody has to have a statistic for their job that gives a numerical assignment of value to whatever product it is they're producing and you have to figure out what that production is and how to statisize it and then you have to have everybody come up with their graphs and the graphs have to be scaled a particular way and depending on the angle of the lines on the graph up or down depend on how you're going to go about dealing with um, the successes and failures of your company, right? The most direct observation, or let me read through this, uh, the most direct observation in an organization is statistics. That's not true. It's not the most direct observation in an organization. Actually going out and looking at your employees working and looking at the quality and the products that they're producing is the most direct observation. Statistics are not the most direct observation. They are observation, as they would say in Scientology, on a via. They are an indirect observation. So the first line of this is total horseshit. Um, but it says the most direct observation in an organization is statistics. These tell the true story of your production. They measure what is done and what isn't. They predict future slumps or successes and well managed can lead the company into higher and higher levels of profitability. Every post, department, division, and your overall company should have statistics to measure productivity. Okay, that's the phase where things get whack. And then there is a financial viability phase where they put in financial management according to L. Ron Hubbard's own version of that. And knowing how Hubbard uh, spent money like a sieve, you know, it just couldn't keep any money. Um, not great. Anyway, and then there is a reference library that contains the basics of the Hubbard management system as well as your company's know-how because you start getting your own company policies written. Uh, and is worth more than the investment, right? So you have this library that you get of all of these materials and policies. So very long-winded answer there, um, but that is the answer to the question. And so then Andrew further asked, um, now that I kind of broke down, what is it that people are buying or participating in when they do the WISE program? Basically everything I just said. Um, and there are a lot of broken down courses and workshops as they referenced in the thing. It's not just these six phases constitute months and weeks and months more of, of work and implementation in a company. And they're paying for this, right? You're paying the Church of Scientology via the World Institute of Scientology Enterprises. Um, they're, they're one of their front groups, right? Um, so... Are they going to be contacting me, Andrew J. asks, for life? What would you advise to do from here? Yes, they are going to be contacting you for life until you very forcefully make them stop. 
And as long as they have dollar signs in their eyes um, they and they think they can get more money out of you, they will continue hounding you and working you over to convince you that this system has to be, you know, maintained and paid for and worked and upgraded and all of that. And then they're going to try to sell you Scientology itself. The whole point of WISE and this whole model of admin know-how thing is not to boom or expand a bunch of non-Scientology companies. It's to convince a bunch of people who are not yet Scientologists that L. Ron Hubbard is a genius and you got to come on over here and do the Scientology Bridge to Total Freedom. That's the only reason that WISE and any of that management stuff is happening. And, of course, for its own profit incentive. So, um, so it's really just a big money-making scheme. And as soon as you're not giving them any more money, um, you know, they're, gonna, they're not going to be super, super interested in you for much longer. Because uh, it's all about the Benjamins, right, at the end of the day. So I would very much advise that you, you get away from that. Because they're just going to continue pushing in a direction where... They're going to demand that your, you and your employees start breaking the law by pushing Scientology religious dogma on your employees in a business setting. Not just the system I just described, because it's kind of been secularized for that. I'm talking about actual Scientology. Go down and do a comm course. Go down and do the learning how to learn course. Do these Scientology classes. This is the next phase you could say of this whole operation is to get you into Scientology and the um, the sort of gray area between the wise management and Scientology is this area where you and your employees are being directed to do Scientology and that's religion in the workplace and that's been the subject of many many lawsuits you can google this it's been over and over again Florida Oregon Washington I've seen lawsuits filed and um, complaints made with the uh, employment equal employment opportunity council I think EEOC um, to stop that behavior because it's it's illegal and um, that's where this goes right is that kind of pressuring so Again, long answer, uh, long questions, but uh, there's my twofer on that. Okay, and uh, let's go back to our regular screen with the chat there. Okay, I don't know, again, I don't know why it zeroes out the chat sometimes when it does that. But let's carry on. Um, Matt B. Hey, Matt. Uh, what exactly in the inside information that Mitch Brisker brought forward caused you to change your mind on the question of whether David Miscavige is a true believer in Scientology? Um, yeah, um, I don't remember. We, Mitch and I talked. Um, well, it was when he basically said that Miscavige is because he, he what did he say? He said uh, there was a very specific point. He said... Um, Oh yeah, he 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 communicated to me that Miscavige was sincere in believing that these programs he was pushing, the Golden Age programs from Golden Age of Tech, Golden Age of Admin, Golden Age of Knowledge, that he was sincere 
in thinking and believing that these programs were actually supposed to expand Scientology. And all the work that was done on the ideal orgs with the space planning, the fact that the Division 6s were supposed to be a third of the square footage of the orgs, and that this was a major, major change in emphasis, and that this was all done in an honest effort by Miscavige to try to solve the public inflow problem. As Mitch saw it, Miscavige was sincere in these efforts. And, and, and remember, Mitch was somebody who worked with and for Miscavige for decades. So, you know, this is not something that is easy to... It's not easy for Miscavige to fool people. It's not easy for any human being to fool people for that length of time if there isn't some truth to that kind of sincerity. And it's possible, it's entirely possible that David Miscavige is a complete psychopathic, narcissistic, like, bully abuser, and at the same time still believes in the mission of Scientology and the fact that, oh, that was it, that he was waiting for L. Ron Hubbard to come back. And he was starting to get frustrated that Hubbard hadn't come back yet. That was the key thing at the bottom of it that I went, wait a minute, what? What? And he said, yeah. He said, absolutely, that is true. Benson. Benson's growling at me here. Hi. You're going to have to wait because I'm live right now, okay? Yeah. It's... Yeah. little Benson cam for you. <laughs> Benson hangs out under the table here often while we're doing our streams. Yes, hi guy. All right, now you got it. You got it. No, no, no. Get down. All right, I got to do my life. Okay, you stay. You stay chill there. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, so that was the that was the point was when he said that he was waiting for L. Ron Hubbard to come back. I went what. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. That was the clincher, right? Because that's that's a weird thing, and it's some and it's the kind of thing that w that a real Scientologist, like a hardcore believer, would know about and would actually say and would think that Hubbard's coming back. And I was like, oh my God, he really believes that, or he, at least he has been believing that all this time. And anyway, that. Um, that cracked me up a lot. That actually made me laugh a lot. Um, but it also put into perspective that it's very possible, if this is true, that Miscavige is getting frustrated about Hubbard not coming back, and all these programs are supposed to be working, and he's constantly gnashing his teeth over the fact that they're not working and people are not getting the work done that he is so brilliantly putting there for them. You know, I've put all this program, you know, here's Miscavige, right? I've done the Golden Age of Tech. I've done the Golden Age of Knowledge. I've done the Golden Age of Admin. I've done, you know, all these Golden Ages, and you fools keep screwing it up. What is wrong with you people right that's Miscavige's attitude uh and the frustration and you know and the, uh, that he feels about that he takes out on people but there seems to be this sincere idea on his part that he actually is supposed to be and is working very hard to expand Scientology so that's that's what convinced that's what kind of got me when um when he said that so 
Um, okay, good. Let's carry on here. Um, Okay, Young Matador. Hey, Chris, should the issues on SPTV be a warning that too many talking heads cause problems in social media-driven cult awareness groups? Videos like yours are much better run. Uh, for example, you and Tony. Well, thank you, Young Matador. Um, no, I don't think it's too many soup. I don't think it's too many cooks in the kitchen or too many people. I don't think that's the nature of the problem. Although. Obviously, the more people who are involved in a thing, the more complications there can be because there's more input and output and, and chance for conflict. That's absolutely true. But I don't think that would be the, the, the underlying reason for the problem. Um, I think it has more to do with misalignment, different purposes, different reasons why people are doing this and different goals in mind, different ideas of what end goals should be, different ideas of what is effective and what is not effective. The thing about, I was thinking, you know, obviously I've been given this a lot of thought, and I think that there are a lot of people who are very, very impatient and very, very, and I don't say this as any kind of cutting remark. I'm not insulting anybody when I say this. What I'm trying to get across here is that I think that we have different ideas about what is effective, what moves the ball down the road, what is helpful, what is useful. And we can have very different ideas about that. And, I mean, what am I supposed to say? That's okay. It is what it is. I mean, we're not all a cult. There is no ex-Scientology or anti-Scientology cult. Because if there was, you wouldn't see any of this conflict. You wouldn't see any of this drama dramatics. You wouldn't see any of this name-calling and other nonsense that goes on because we'd all be unified under one banner following the orders and directions of a unified leadership. And we are the exact opposite of that. And that, I think, is more the problem, um, to be honest, that we're, that we're you know, uh, so individual, right? So, as they say in Scientology, so individuated. <laughs> That's the word in Scientology for a bunch of individuals acting like a bunch of individuals, right? And it's not inherently bad or wrong to be that way at all. But it makes it so that we're not all on the same page and, you know, and, and we can, you know, run into each other. But I think that there has been an incentivized, I think that it, it has become financially and, um, okay, I think that YouTube... And social media specifically incentivize an attention economy. You are paid. You are financially rewarded or you are psychologically rewarded or some other in, a, in some other fashion, right? The rewards are money and attention. So the more attention you draw to yourself, the more people you can draw to yourself who are paying attention to you, the more money you can make and the more of an impact you believe you can have. But that's not necessarily always true. Uh, what you do with that attention is what matters. And when you use that attention to attack other people in this sort of this thing that we're all trying to move the ball down this road and you spend most or all of your time attacking other people trying to do that, then you're not doing that. You're doing something else. You're, you're incentivizing that attention and finance thing to do a different thing than what 
you know, than moving the ball down the road, I guess I'm, I'm saying, right? I said this on Friday, too. And this is, I'm not trying to be cryptic. I'm trying to say we're so much not on the same page that it becomes incentivized to attack one another. The social media, by its nature, does that. You have to fight it to not do that. And some people don't see that or get that or something. I don't know. I don't know, right? Or um, that kind of thing. So that's how I see it, right? Is, um, is things just, you know, we, we were never all on the same page, nor did we all want to be. But we weren't counterposed and tearing each other apart and ripping into each other and cutting each other down and making less of each other. And somehow the forest gets lost in the trees of that, you know, somehow people get so hyper-focused and I know how I've been talking about it for years, right? You get so hyper-focused on, you know, the, the righteousness of some petty squabble that that becomes, you know, your life mission. And it's, it's ridiculous. Most of the most effect and, and, and the YouTube thing, let me say one more thing about this that I think is an important point to make. What you see and experience on YouTube isn't all that's going on in fighting Scientology. Videos and protests and talking and educating is not all that's going on. There's so much that goes on off camera consulting, uh, therapy, interventions, legal work, uh, policy work, academic work, stuff you guys never hear much about or don't pay much attention to or don't even want to know very much about, right? Because it's kind of boring. And YouTube is a is a medium that demands excitement and it you know it has to be like amazing and it has to be short attention span theater or it's just not worth anything to people you know it doesn't lend itself to the actual work that that really brings down cults you know youtube videos don't bring down cults real work in the real world does this is just a reflection of that and an effort to bolster that and, and make that more useful, more meaningful, more effective. And it's a way of raising awareness with people. That's the main thing that this is good for. But you can raise awareness or you can use it to create conflict. And conflict is easy. It's the lowest, it's the easiest thing to do, to create. Uh, it takes nothing to do it, right? At all. It's easy. It's a lot harder to create work that is got long-term meaningful uh, impact, I think. Personally, I think that. Uh, no matter what subject, no matter what you're talking about, right? It doesn't even matter. Okay. Um, I don't know. Some thoughts on that. All right, let's carry on here. Um, Anthony Spurgeon, is there a conspiracy theory you buy? You bet there is. Um, there's a lot of conspiracy theories I buy. Uh, I just don't buy the... Oh, there it is. Okay. Sorry. Getting my things in order here. Um, there have been lots of conspiracies in the, in the world that I have 
um, made known, talked about, you know, that kind of thing that uh, I guess. But I think if you say, I think the, the flavor of your question really, Anthony, is, is there like these off the rail global conspiracies, you know, these connect the dots that don't connect kind of conspiracy theories that I believe in. And, um, and the answer, I guess, right now is no, I, I don't, right? I know that um, there have been very real, very effective and very damaging conspiracies in our past. The Tuskegee medical thing, right? That was a horrid uh, conspiracy theory that actually turned out to be true. Perhaps the, um, the one that I think is the most damning, is the most like, like in your face, is... Operation Paperclip. I just I, I did a whole podcast about it, right? Where the where Nazi scientists were distributed amongst the world, especially here in the U.S. And they are they were basically responsible for our space program and NASA and and uh, satellites and cell phones and every piece of technology that we utilize. Uh, basically, we owe to Nazi scientists, and not a joke, not hyperbole, not even exaggeration. It's true, right? Nazi scientists did that, um, and. That's a real thing. And I think that's one of the most difficult moral issues to grapple with in history is that fact. You know, that's, that's one that messes with me. Um, but again, not really, strictly speaking, conspiracy theory. It's more conspiracy fact. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's, that's what comes to mind for me on that that I'd like to mention. Uh, Laura Waldy, of the cults you are studying, which one is the closest to Scientology? Um, good question. Oh, that's a good one. Um, cause they're so, they're all so similar, right? That once you kind of get this idea of the framework or the sort of like checklist of what a cult is made of, um, but I'll tell you an insidious one and, and it may, and it's probably just cause I got so much exposure to it in a very short period of time, very recently, cause I've mentioned it a few times already. But this radical honesty group really, really hit me between the eyes as a very Scientology-like effort. It was a, it's a pseudo-therapeutic cult uh, based around the concept of being uh, radically honest, right? You're always telling the truth in the, in, and often in, a, in an offensive way um, for effect. And so, you know, and there's a whole social hierarchy to it. And there's a lot of predation and weird stuff that goes on in that group as a result of this emboldening of your very worst self. The whole point of radical honesty is to sort of bring out your inner narcissist and, 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 uh, incentivize that, right? Make that a validated personality for you. And the more you bring that out, the more radically honest you are being because the whole foundation of it is having been created by a guy who I believe is a narcissist. He sort of documented or laid out a system that will turn people into that same thing. And he called it a sort of form of therapy and counseling even. And there's a, there's a whole system to it. And he drew from Scientology and he uses the term reactive mind in the literature. Uh, you can look up radical honesty, go to the website and you'll see the guy talking about your horrible reactive mind. I was like, what? And it got worse from there, right? And there's other things. There's other. There's a few other principles in Scientology that he seems to have sort of dropped into his radical honesty thing. Doesn't have anything to do with spirituality or thetans or body thetans. Doesn't go there. 
it's a very you know practical minded sort of thing in the in the here and now it's not a spiritual belief set but it's very scientology like in the way that it's sort of very insidiously worms its way into your thinking uh the writing uh this guy brad can't remember his last name but the guy who came up with this stuff um you know he has this way of writing that is very hubbardarian he's he, he sort of you know insinuates his way sort of slimes his way into your head with these ideas that sound like they kind of make sense until you start really taking it apart and then you realize how dangerous it is and how um abusive the practice is so um so that's what comes to mind for me just because it was, you know, like I said, in my face fairly recently, Laura. Great thing. Great question. Um, did you read the more recent books of Robert J. Lifton after 2010? I have not yet. I have um, a copy of Destroying the World to Save It, which is about Aum Shinrikyo and the whole Japanese sarin gas thing, that whole cult. Um, Shoka Asahara, I think, was the name of the cult leader there. He wrote a whole book about that, which I still have to read. Um, and I have, but I've, I've uh, so no, I have not read those other Lifton books yet. I'm very familiar with them, but I haven't actually sat and gone through them. Um, Ex Scientology, are the Nation of Islam members still encouraged to do Dianetics by its leader? Yes, as I understand it, they are. I have not seen or heard a whole lot about that in, in a few years now, though. So don't quote me on that. I'm not 100%. But as far as I can tell from the promo and literature and stuff we see coming out of Scientology, they still have NOI members uh, moving on up the bridge and joining staff and doing the Scientology thing. So, yeah. Um, okay, Laura asks... Uh, ooh, we got a lot of questions in the queue. This is great. Do you help anyone escaping any cult? I may send a lead to you who is not an ex-Scientologist. Yes, Laura, I do. Absolutely, I do. That's part of the consulting consulting work that I do, and I have done. Um, I have been involved in. I have not run or organized, but I've been part of a couple of cult interventions where we worked with family and uh, worked with a cult member to get them out. Um, so have I helped anyone escape a cult do i do you help anyone escaping any cult yes i do yes i am more than happy to help anybody in that sense um yeah so feel free to send them my way if they're willing to talk okay um Yes, Love Food Kitchen is the new show, news show going to come back eventually. That had such potential, but I get it was a huge workload each week. Yes, but with a wider focus on the cult world for the channel now, it seems a great fit. You bet it is. Um, in fact, I am very much looking forward to bringing that news show back after I get these, these projects done. Um, I want to bring it back in a, in a, in a, a better way, like you've you know, like you noticed. But yes, absolutely, I definitely want critical cult news to be uh, regular content on this channel. I just need to get some other stuff out of my kind of off my plate first because I tried to take on too much uh, at once and it didn't it didn't work out. I was just so overloaded it didn't didn't work out for me. Um, thank you for asking, though. I'm really looking forward to getting that going again. Um, yeah, here's an interesting question. Young Matador asked, did LRH ever consider the Church of Scientology to be a Hubbard dynasty similar to North Korea? 
His son, Nibs, originally seemed to be a competent deputy to him. Just wondered what your thoughts were on this. Yeah, um, I do believe that in the 1950s, L. Ron Hubbard had the idea of family dynasty. Yeah, I do. But it was all about him first. Let's keep that in mind. Just like with any living cult leader or, you know, family dynasty head, right, patriarch or matriarch, it's all about them first. Uh, always, always, even when it looks like it's not, it is, okay? But that being said, yes, they often have a desire for uh, family dynasty because family is the inner circle you can always trust, or at least you should think you'd always be able to trust it, right? Family before everything. And Hubbard was trying to create that, but Hubbard didn't know how to because Hubbard didn't know how to love his children because Hubbard didn't really know how to love. He didn't even know how to fake it very well. He could, he could sort of schmooze and womanize women for short periods of time, but people caught on to his shtick pretty damn fast. And um, there's some interesting uh, interviews with people uh, who knew and, and uh, were involved with Hubbard in the 50s uh, on this line. And I think that Hubbard's vindictiveness uh, and ego were so were such that when Nibs did finally betray him in 1959, Hubbard, um, you know, was just kind of like slam the door, murder that kid, and I don't ever want to see him again, right? If he never, you shall never darken my door, kind of thing. Uh, and Hubbard was definitely a never forgive, never forget guy. Definitely, right? Even with his own family. So, um, so I, just, I just don't think he had a strong enough family urge in any way. He'd already messed up two families by the time his third one came around. And, you know, he liked to have sex. He liked to propagate his genes. But he didn't want to have anything to do with it after that. Not really. You know, that was Hubbard. All right. Uh, my freedom from Jehovah's Witnesses. So, uh, nice name change there. Do the staff and the free winds work 16 hours a day just like it? Big blue, does it still have asbestos? Um, the staff on the free winds definitely work minimum 16-hour days. Yes, absolutely. They are Sea Org. They do work hard. And um, as far as I know, they have replaced out all of the asbestos as of like a couple decades ago. I, th I think that's been a dealt with situation for quite some time, as I understand it. Okay. All right, moving right along here. Oh, good question. XINS. How much of Scientology material was originated and written by LRH versus done by others and or plagiarized? I wish I knew the exact answer to that question. It would take a great deal of research to actually get it. That being said, <laughs> judging from what I remember of the 1970s, I don't know how much history you guys want to hear about this. I'm going to, I'm going to try to go real fast. There used to be different kinds of issues in Scientology that acknowledged the fact that other people wrote Scientology materials and policies. They were called board technical bulletins and board policy letters, as in an, a, board, a policy letter or a bulletin 
written by the board of directors of the Church of Scientology. So it was, so it was a board policy letter. It wasn't a Hubbard policy letter, right? It was a BTB or a BPL, not an HCOPL or an HCOB. If it came from HCO, it was from Hubbard. If it came from the board, it wasn't Hubbard, and it was signed not by Hubbard. It was signed by whoever it was who wrote it. And there were a lot of issues in the 1970s that were put out under Scientology's masthead, which were official issues of Scientology, but not Hubbard's. There were hundreds of them, maybe thousands. That's what I don't know is exactly how many there were. There were a lot. There were binders of them. In the 1980s, almost all of those were converted over to HCO bulletins and policy letters at Miscavige's order. They just wiped out those other people's names and put L. Ron Hubbard's name on it. That was it. So how much of Scientology is that? 5 10%, 20%, 20%? Hard to say. Not a majority, but an awful lot of it, especially when you get into those issues about running organizations and during, and undoing certain kinds of technical procedures. Even those written by others, uh, but eventually all put under L. Ron Hubbard's name. So that's sort of the history of that, right? So it's a lot. Uh, but the, what the whole problem is, nobody really knows exactly how much. And uh, wouldn't it be interesting if you could have the time to go through all the materials and figure that out? Right? You'd find a lot. I think especially, like I said, in those green and red volumes, you'd find a lot. Okay. Oh, all right. Can a concerned family member walk inside Big Blue and try to see their loved one working in Big Blue? They can try. <laughs> um, not going to get very far, right? There are locked doors everywhere in PAC, in Big Blue, right? The, 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 the blue buildings in Los Angeles, the Sea Org base there. Um, you can walk into ASHO, LA Org, the cafe or the Advanced Org of Los Angeles, or you could walk around the back over into the CLO, the management organization there. So you could make it to reception, the reception desk, but they're going to stop you. And if you try to go further, you're going to run into locked doors that require magnet card access, and you're not going to be able to get in there. So you're not going to have access to your family or friends unless they are walking around outside. You're just not going to get into the buildings. And if you do manage to sneak into the building, security is going to come running after you. They've got cameras covering all the common areas, all the um, areas where staff move around from place to place. And so they're going to see you right away. Uh, and, if, and if security is at all on the ball, um, you know, they're going to kick you out of there uh, before you get wandering around too far, right? And they're not going to necessarily be kind about it either. So, especially if you get into the locked areas. Um, yeah, so that's what's going to happen there. All right, let's see what else we got here. Let's go. Let's switch back over to one of the pre-questions because I don't want to forget those or not get to them. So we go back here. And let's pop up the second one. There it is. Okay, Robert Tobias. 
Um, just because a former high-level executive Sea Org member has left the Church of Scientology and now publicly decries the practices of Scientology, does that automatically absolve them of their terrible behavior while they were still a member? Do they deserve a free pass because they were under the influence of a destructive cult? Tough question, isn't it? Because the easy answer is absolutely until you start examining what it was that people get up to when they're in a cult, right? And some of the shit they get up to is pretty nasty. So that gives you pause. You go, wait a minute, hang on a second. At which point the question becomes one of context, right? It becomes individual for each person. What have they done? Pretty much the tit-for-tat question on, on a person's mind should be when dealing with ex-cult members who have been abusive in their past is, is there remorse? Is there honest reflection of their behavior and change as a result of that in the real world in the here and now? And does that change include going above and beyond or doing something obvious and you know right there that anybody can see to counteract or make up for what was done in the past because no matter how much you or me or thee wish that you can go back and change the past you can't there's nothing you can do to change the asshole shit you did when you were in the cult I can't change what I did. Mike Rinder can't change what he did. Leah can't change what she did. None of us can. So what do we do moving forward? That's what defines who we are and shows what our character is. And if you take actions after leaving a cult to fight that cult, push back against that cult, try to temper those abuses, try to deal with those abuses, try to take responsibility for what it was that you engaged in, what more could somebody possibly ask of you? In honesty, in a real, transparently honest way, there isn't anything more than anybody can ask of you. But if people have trauma connected with, and I, I you know, I'm going to go there, if people have trauma connected with you as an individual because you hurt them, right, you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to take responsibility for that. I have certainly tried. I have, I have done everything I can to one-on-one -on -one apologize, deal with any individual while I was a Scientologist that I abused or harmed. If I did it, I want to own it. I want to take responsibility for it, and I want to move forward right? As best I know how. And every single time that has come across my plate, I have uh, gone out of my way to apologize and get in communication and try to sort it out. Most of the time, in fact, I think of all the people who've ever contacted me, we sorted it out. So I can say that. I, I've, I've not worked with or, or, or met up with or dealt with anybody who I didn't sort it out with. So I, I think it can be done because I've done it. And I think it's important to do. What I think is just as important is to acknowledge that people can be very judgmental who really have no stake in the game at all. They just have opinions. 
And I think that those can get a little noisy and certainly distracting. They can become noisy to the point of distraction. Uh, and if that is the case where that noise and that blame, shame, and regret kind of stuff is getting in the way of, again, moving the ball down the road or actually trying to work together, make this thing happen, it's counterproductive, right? There's no real reason for it. And that's, you know, that's my take on that is if somebody's doing the work, okay, let's get real specific. Me, Mike Rinder, Leah, we all did nasty shit when we were in Scientology. All of us did. So how long do you get blamed for that? How long is that held over your head? Well, I guess it would depend on what you did and, and how much you've done to make up for that. Is the amount of work that I have done over the years enough to make up for or balance the scales, meet my karmic demand, <laughs> right, for what I did while I was in? I guess that's going to be a question every individual can sort of look at me and answer. But for me personally, I passed that point some time ago. And I believe that when it comes to high level executive Sea Org members who have left, you know, there's a whole lot of controversy right now about Mike Rinder. I don't know. I don't quite get it. Um, because anyway. I think in a general sense, you can look at the work a person has done after they've left the cult and you can tell right away their character and their intention and what they're about. And I think it's obvious. And I think the obviousness of it is demonstrated so well by Mike Rinder and Marty Rathbun. I, I think that I think the products, the, the things these, these people, these two individuals, uh, the, the activities they engaged in, the words they said, uh, what they did, what they didn't do over the years since leaving Scientology has made it crystal clear who those people are and what they're about. And that's how I look at and judge people, right? So, um, so no, I don't think anyone deserves a free pass, I think we have to look at each individual and on their own merits, judge them specifically in their context of their circumstance, right? And that's, that's hard to do. Um, but that's what I think. Yeah. Okay. Let's go back. Uh, there. Huh. That's an interesting question. My freedom for Jehovah's Witnesses. Since Kirstie Alley was OT8 and went to the free winds, do you think that she got her cancer from the asbestos in the ship? I mean, maybe. It's possible. Anything's possible. I, I have no idea. I, I, don't know how even, I don't know how to answer that. Um, it's possible. What an interesting question. You guys are asking me some great questions today, by the way. Uh, thank you. Um, what would you say if asked, how does it feel to be a Scientologist? How does it feel 
to be a Scientologist? I guess it would ask, I guess it would depend a little bit on the time of day. <laughs> you asked um, being a Scientologist felt like I was on Neo's team in the Matrix. It's a great analogy. It's probably the best analogy. <clears throat> Hard work, dedication, discipline. We, I saw myself in a heroic context. I saw myself in the light of someone who was stepping up and doing something every single day. Sacrifice, especially as a staff member and, and, even, and especially as a Sea Org member. But as, as, even as a general Scientologist, even when I was still a public level Scientologist, I had this idea that we were special and elite. We were unique. We knew things. We... I would talk to other Scientologists. I remember one time walking down Hollywood Boulevard with, a, with another Scientologist. And he looked at me and he said, you know, we are the most uptone people in a one-mile radius. Look at all these DBs. Look at all these degraded beings around us. Right? We're the only ones on this street who have a clue. And we were serious. I was like nodding vigorously, you know, yeah. I was still a teenager having this conversation with this adult who was talking like this. And I absolutely believed it, right? Yes, we are the special ones. We are, I mean, words like exalted come to mind when I think about where my head was at. You know, like, like really exaggerated levels of, import, of self-importance. And, and when I would get upset, exaggerated levels of self-righteousness, excuse me, over those beliefs and ideas and the mission of what Scientology was about. There wasn't, in the big picture of things, there wasn't anything more important than Scientology succeeding. That's for sure, right? That was first and foremost on my mind a lot. And I used to be so upset at how stupid everybody was that they couldn't see that. And how distracted, how easily distracted everybody was by the, the games of the world. You know, sports and money and politics and religion and all these things that people would just waste all of their time on. All lies, all nonsense. How, how do you not see that? Like it's right, the answers are right here. Just all you got to do, you know. I get so frustrated with people because I felt so easy. They're right. The answers are right there. You know, I didn't. I didn't really think about the fact that I'd grown up with this, or that you know, I'd I'd been in this, uh, you know, indoctrinated position. It just seems so obvious to me. What's wrong with people? You know, it was like that. That was, yeah, it was a lot like that. And, um, and I was just thinking about, you know, me in relation to people and stuff. It was, um, yeah, I just really wanted to, I really wanted to serve up sanity to everybody. <laughs> and I thought I had the, I thought I had it in my hand. Just take it. Just take it. It's right here. That's what it felt like for me to be a Scientologist. I was impatient all the time. I was, I was kind of upset and annoyed with the world all the time. 
you know, I would try to be understanding. Sometimes when I was quite elated, when I was quite, you know, blown out by my wins and stuff in Scientology, I would feel that that oneness with everybody and I would feel like, you know, okay, we're all in this together, you know, and I'd kind of feel a lot of compassion and care for people. But you know, but a lot of the time it was back down to, oh, you people, you know, come on. The non-Scientologists, of course, I'm talking about, right? And the fact that we couldn't get it going um, to, you know, fast enough. We just couldn't get it going fast enough. So frustrated about that. All right. So that's uh, that's what comes to mind in that one. Thanks for asking that. That was, a, that was an interesting one. All right. Um, let's see here. Ah, Stuart Gorman. Here's a great question. Are all cult leaders extroverts? No, they're not. Um, but they can put on a show. Yeah, because it's interesting. Um, they can act like extroverts. And let me, let me share something with you that, that, that informs my answer here. I used to think I was an extrovert. And it might surprise you to, to hear me say used to think. Because I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I think you all get that I'm a kind of a, you know, out there, talkative, you know, kind of person. But it's not necessarily my preference anymore to be that way, whereas I used to think it was. When I first got out of Scientology and for quite a while, afterwards, I, I labeled myself an extrovert, thought of myself as an extrovert, thought that was where I was coming from. And like ADHD, it was sort of this slowly dawning realization over a long time. Wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe... You know, I've been calling myself an extrovert all this time, but why is it that I just want to stay home and not go interact with people and not be social and what? But I'm supposed to be an extrovert, but I don't want to do extroverted things. It took a while for that to kind of start clicking in and realize that all that extroverted activity that I was, you know, so hype about was kind of the Scientology version of me. That, I, that had been sort of enforced on me. And I don't mean that in like, you know, I was so abused, I had to be an extrovert. I just mean I had done this whole internal sort of shift. And the more me I became again, the more like I went back to, you know, who I've really been this whole time and dropped all the cult pretenses and demands and personality, you know, stuff that it would put there. Um, the more that stuff went away, the less extroverted I felt. But I didn't, I didn't then feel like an introvert where I'm like, you know, pathologically so. I just felt more, oh, oh no, this is kind of more my natural sort of thing is to be a little bit more, meh, I don't know, you know, kind of, as opposed to the bright out there in your face extrovert. So that's where I'm coming from and talking about that. I'm not going deep on the psychology, but I'm sort of, you know, that's kind of my own experience with it. So when I think about cult leaders, you know, always being extroverts, I kind of go, no, nah, not necessarily. They can act like it, and they certainly have to present. No cult leader is ever going to be successful if they can't manage an audience. <laughs> so, you know, so they have to have skills. But that doesn't necessarily have to make their personality type 
an extrovert. But they do have to be extroverted, and they do have to be able to, 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 to do that work, right? I will say that for sure. Okay. Um, let's see here. Oh, here's a great one. Do you believe this to be true? Quote, third-party law. The law would seem to be a third party must be present and unknown in every quarrel for a conflict to exist. Yes. Thank you for bringing this up because this is one of those Scientology absolute data that is not absolute at all. It's a wonderful example of how Hubbard will take a principle and say it applies uniformly across the boards, every conflict, any unresolving conflict. And that's sort of in the policy as well is if the conflict is not resolving through normal means or, you know, it just doesn't really seem to be able to be resolved, there must be this third party hidden influencer. And yes, absolutely, there often is. But there's not always, not by any stretch of the imagination. Two people can keep a conflict going out of sheer orneriness, you know, out of, out of bias, out of cognitive decline, out of uh, paranoia, out of other mental phenomena. Lots of reasons people can stay in conflict that has nothing to do with a third party. But that doesn't negate the very real fact that hidden influencers, agent provocateurs and saboteurs, if you will, organizationally, um, you know, can get into the mix and can make things bad and often do. People love doing that, right? Stirring up trouble, stirring that pot, uh, rumor mongering, that kind of thing. So, so it's a principle that has utility, but to but to to think that's the only reason the conflict will continue unresolved between two people, that's just not true at all, and that's where the third party law falls down uh, in Scientology. All right, Let's see what else we got here. Oh, so many questions coming in. It's great. Uh, yeah, we're just running over. By the way, I'm just going to keep going. I, I'm going to keep going until I'm until I feel like I'm done. If y'all want to hang out and stay with me, uh, okay. Um, Exion, you mentioned in a critical clip, let's pull this up on the screen. You mentioned in a critical clip that there was a policy issue that came out about sex in the Sea Org. Do you know what kind of issue it was and what it was called? I'd like to find a copy. Um, I believe you're referring to 2D rules, which is a flag order. The, C, the policies of the Sea Org are laid out in a few different issue types. And, and the most prominent, the, the, the biggest one, and the most important one, the senior one, is what's called a flag order, and, uh, or an FO. And there are thousands of them. And, um, and one of them covers 2D rules, is what it's called. 2D referring to sex and sexual relationships and things like that. So there are rules in the Sea Org for um, what you can and cannot do. Um, and in fact, I'm wondering as I sit here right now whether this is Googleable or not. So let me see. Flag order Scientology. Let's see what comes up. Gag two. <laughs> uh, now doesn't look like a copy of it comes up. I'd have to go into my. I don't think I put the flag orders up on my shared drive yet. I have a um, place where I can access my 
Scientology stuff here, uh, a lot of it, but I don't think I put the flag orders in there yet. No, not yet. Okay, so I can't look it up for you. Sorry. Anyway, um, yeah, that's what I can tell you about that. I, I, I hope that's the right one that you're referring to there. All right, moving on. Um, <laughs> uh, says here, Anthony Spurgeon, what do you think about a live stream Battlefield Earth watch party? Do a drinking game for every time Travolta hams it up. Uh, I think that might be kind of fun to do on the uh, Discord or something sometime. I don't know if I'm going to do that on my channel, but... Um, but it, yeah, that would be kind of a fun thing to do. If I hadn't already seen that movie to the point of nausea, maybe I'd be a little bit more interested, to be honest, though. I mean, I, it would be fun. But, God, I, I, ooh, I don't know if I can communicate how much I hate that movie. I hate it a lot. <laughs> I hate it a lot. Because <laughs> I've had to see it a lot. Um, okay, let's get on here. Uh, Exion, were you ever on the RPF's RPF? Uh, how do you get on it? How do you get off? Absolutely, I will tell you my RPF's RPF story. Yes, I was on the RPF's RPF. Um, as you all know, the RPF is the, it used to be the Sea Org Prison Rehabilitation System. And I was doing that, I did that program to completion. It took me three years three months to get it done. Um, during that time, I had three different twins assigned to me, people I would work with to try to get through the program, and they would get me through the program. You, you don't get through it alone. You work with somebody else. We've, we've laid it all out in many, many places on my channel, so I'm not going to repeat it all here, but you know you got to have somebody to work with. That's, that's fundamental. There is no such thing as a solo RPF. You got to audit the other person. They have to audit you, etc. Um, my second twin didn't want to continue. Reached a point after uh, we were together for a year where he was like, I'm not making it through this. I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go. He was Hungarian. He was a great guy. I really liked him. He and I were friends. And we both ended up on the RPF for very, very different reasons, different times, but we, we, were, we were working together. And he decided he wanted to leave. And so when you decide you want to leave the RPF or leave the Sea Org, you go to the RPF's RPF, where you're supposed to get rehabilitated on doing the RPF. <laughs> okay? And it's a punishment thing, and it's a stricter schedule than even the RPF has, and you have more restrictions and and stuff like that. It's kind of a, a, a not great place. But at the same time, it's an unpoliced activity. So while it's more restrictive and, and at times run in a more grueling fashion, my experience of it was it was pretty slack. Because it was people who wanted to leave. And there were, no, there were not lots of people. In fact, when I was on the RPF's RPF, I think there were three of us on it. So it wasn't, you know, and I, and I was part of a 100-man RPF program. So there were only a few of us when I was on who were trying to go out the back door, trying to leave. And, uh, you know, exit the program, exit the Sea Org is what I mean by going out the back door. I don't mean blowing. Um, I didn't want to leave. I wanted to get through the program. But my twin wanted to leave. So, okay, off you go to the RPF's RPF. And... And you're regarded amongst the RPFers. If you want to suddenly leave 
you're an asshole. You're a dick. Right? Yeah, you fucking quitter, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you're relegated off to the RZR. That's what they call it, the RZR, rather than calling it the RPF's RPF. Who wants to say that all the time, right? RZR. So you go to the RZR. <sighs> RZR. And if you want to get your ass off the RZR and get back into the program, you will be supported. And I was. Right? They thought it sucked that my twin wanted to leave. It was kind of my fault. I was supposed to kind of handle him, but he didn't want to be handled. And after a few days, I wanted to get on with the program. And people were kind of like, dump this motherfucker and let's go. Let's get you back in. We'll get you with somebody else. And basically, that's what happened. I did a few things. I was there for about a week. I think I, I made some carpentry stuff to make up the damage i think i did some work for the rpf and, and fixed some shelves or cabinets or something i think i made a uh, at one point i think i made a um uh, a tape case holder uh, like a like a holder a container to hold all of the saint hill special briefing course cassette lectures like 460 cassette lectures i made this cabinet to hold them it was not a beautiful piece of work but it functioned and I got back into the RPF uh, doing that and that's how I got through the RZR um, that was my experience with it um, so you asked yeah that's how I got on and that's how I got off and I had to get off it by doing the liability formula writing up here's what I did and I'm, I've been a bad boy but I want to get back on the RPF and I want to get through this program and so I distributed that amongst all the RPFers went around getting signatures and they all said yes yes let's get you back on and uh, then I was back on the program and you know got a new twin and get, finally got through it about a year and a half later um, okay so there you go Huh. Matt B. asks, did you see the apocalyptic cult connection in Batman Begins and in Tenet? The League of Shadows works to destroy civilizations. Sator seeks to destroy his ex-wife and the world because he is dying. Well, I didn't see Tenet. I got such bad reviews, I was kind of like, eh, eh. You know, I, I don't want to be confused by Christopher Nolan. I enjoy his movies, so I didn't want to go be, be confused by Tenet. Um, but I certainly saw Batman Begins many, many times, and I'm very well aware of the League of Shadows. Um, apocalyptic cult. See, that's an interesting take on Batman Begins, because right away, Matt, I sort of disagree with you a little bit, because I don't see the League of Shadows as a group that is apocalyptic. They are destructive, but they see it as destroying the corruption that is inherent in man. And they got to burn down the corruption and root it out. And therefore, they believe they are doing good in the world and that they are a force for good overall. That's what I saw in the League of Shadows as explained in Batman Begins, is a group that was destroying the world to save it, right? Reference back to Lifton, right? In that book about Am Shinrikyo. Uh, that's the backwardsness of what can happen to basically weaponized empaths, right? You take people who have good nature, who want to do good in the world, and you convince them that the best way to do good is to destroy the world, is to, is to, is to hurt people, kill people, get rid of people, who are evil, of course. They're the bad guys, and those, those bad guys are the reason why evil flourishes. And so if we get rid of them, 
the world will be good. Simple equation, very, very easy calculus. You go, oh, yeah, absolutely, let's go wipe those guys out. And by wiping them out, we make a better world. We will be evil to enact the ultimate good. That's extremist cult thinking all the way, right? All the way out there. Uh, so that's what I see in that. But I, I, I'm sorry, I can't talk to about the tenant one. I didn't see it, don't know anything about it. All right. Uh, let's see here. Let me go back here before I forget. I think we have one more of our preset questions, and I want to make sure we get all of those in. Uh, let me see here. Yes. Okay, Steve Wood had a question. There are countless times where David Miscavige completely and utterly puts down Mike Rinder and Marty Rathbun in horrible ways, telling them and anyone else that will listen that they are all complete and utter idiots. And if he needs a job to go right, he's the only one that can do that. Why did he keep bringing them back and using them to fix Scientology problems? If they are that hopeless and useless... Why doesn't he take matters into his own hands if he's the only one that is competent enough to handle these problems? I've often wondered about this and hope that you can shed light on this subject. Okay, sorry, I missed the uh, question mark grammar there. Um, so, a couple things on this one. Uh, thing number one is... The competency that a cult leader displays, certainly David Miscavige specifically, and, and many others in, in lots of ways, is a false front. It's a fake, right? It's a veneer. The cult leader is usually, um, and this also speaks to that extroversion question earlier, because they are often a forced extrovert. They, they, they force their personality. Because that, because what they're presenting to the world or what they're presenting to their cult is not who they really are. L. Ron Hubbard was a magnificent example of this. A, a, you know, I think he was bipolar. He was certainly depressive. He would have manic episodes. He would go on by, on on binges he, and benders and drink and drugs himself into stupors. Uh, he would go into these crying fits, these depressive episodes. He would basically lose his shit and. He would do that on a routine basis, but he kept it hidden and away from the cult. He was a coward in many, many ways, L. Ron Hubbard was, as is David Miscavige. He's terrified of direct confrontation. His power is assumed. It's, it's, it's a front. It's a suit that he wears. It's not a real reflection of who he really, really, really is. Um. He won't admit that even to himself. L. Ron Hubbard barely could, um, except when he was in his depressive times and doing his, his private writings about his, you know, oh, woe is me and oh, how horrible I am. Um, but even then, always looking for an out, always looking for solutions, even if it was self-hypnosis, like all those affirmations. With, um, with Miscavige... There's another thing that happens in addition to the personality problem of the cult leader itself and how there really are almost uniformly cowardly, you know, very craven people. Um, there's another thing here, which is they can't ever let the buck stop with them as often as possible. And this is an operational thing for running a cult. 
as often as possible, cult leader wants scapegoats. They need scapegoats because they can never, ever be responsible for a failure or a problem. If a cult leader is found to be responsible for a major screw-up, he's flawed. He could do it again. He's weak. He's got flaws. He's got blind spots, right? Like that's what that says. If he fails or, or, or makes mistakes or screws up on something, the whole cult might have start might start having second questions doubts right uncertainties about wait a minute i thought so the cult leader must always have someone else to be able to put the blame on and that's why the hole was just used as a you know farmed out okay who's going to be on the firing line today mike rinder Get up on that stage and give a speech because David Miscavige sure isn't going to go out there and do that. Not on that particular thing, for example, or whatever, right? Or whatever it is they're going to go off and do. Uh, PR issue. Go handle that SP. Go deal with those reporters. Go deal with that journalist, right? Go take down John Sweeney. Go deal with the BBC. Miscavige isn't going to do it because if he screws it up, it's on him. So it's so much easier as a cult leader to just say, I could have done that 10 times better than you, you moron, right? It's easy to say that after the fact, but he never has to go prove it because he's the leader and he's got an endless line of scapegoats that he can just shuffle through and waste and waste and waste and see all these fools and idiots and suppressives who are trying to do us you know, do us a bad, who are trying to do away with Scientology, it's a good thing I'm here to spot them and deal with them, right, as the cult leader. Like, you got a lot of different things that come off of this or, or result from this. But basically, the bottom line is the cult leader needs scapegoats. And that's why they he, he or she will continue to create them. Because it keeps attention away from the cult leader and his foibles and his problems and his issues and his mistakes. Um, that's my, as far as I'm concerned, that's the, that's the main answer there. Hope that suffices. All right, let's go back here. Um, see, and this time the, and this time the comments stayed up. Maybe it has something to do with the amount of time that they're off or something. Off. I'm still trying to, to figure that out. All right. Let us carry on here. That, okay, sorry, I had a little ad come up. All right, um, by the way, I've been setting my ads on conservative level of ads. I hope you guys aren't getting too many ads in the middle of the shows. I've set them for the smallest number that can be for, from YouTube, so. Um, all right, Young Matador asks, why are the current MCU productions, the Avengers, Madam Web, having such awful reviews? Some of the recent output has been, in my opinion, dire. Well, that's why. I mean, if they're bad movies is why. They're bad storytelling. They've lost sight of what makes superhero movies superhero movies. They, that doesn't necessarily on the surface look like they have, but they have because there's no heart in these movies. And, there's no, and, the, and the character arcs and the story writing, the basic fundamentals of good story writing haven't existed in the MCU or in most Disney productions um, 
for about the last 10, 12 years or so. It's been, it's been pretty bad. Um, and that's why. It's bad writing, it's bad show running, it's bad direction, and it's basically bad guidance from the very, very top, right? This, this, the rot starts from the top on this one, uh, unfortunately, right? When you're using movies or entertainment vehicles to deliver messages, that's fine. Messages are important and part of every artistic communication. You, you got themes, you got story arcs, you have messaging. But when the message dominates and, and becomes more important than the story or the character or the reality of human change that we know we should be seeing in a story when when that when that messaging you know it becomes more important than the story itself as a story you have a problem and a lot of people don't necessarily know or think about or or break down or deconstruct what makes a story good versus what makes a story bad? They just know they don't like it. Something's off about this. I don't like this. This doesn't make sense or it doesn't work or it doesn't represent or it doesn't appeal or for some fashion, it doesn't click or connect. Well, we can break that down and see story element-wise why, bad direction, etc. And that's been prevalent and talked about ad nauseum amongst the critic community uh, in the movie industry for, for a long time now. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll get around to fixing that. Maybe they won't. Um, it's not just a matter of left-wing versus right-wing values. This is not an ideological battle. That's not the problem, right? Left-wing values, right-wing values, these are human values. These are fine. That's not what's the problem with the story. It's that the storytelling and the framework of them is so poorly done, it's so egregiously bad, right? The dialogue is so horrible, right? The structure is so bad. The, the, the lack of character development is so bad that it just slaps you it's so bad, right? And that's why they are failing. <laughs> there's my movie critic hat for you uh but i will definitely uh, definitely don't have a problem talking about that um chris wood do you listen to beck um does the sh does shame play a role in the psychological damage that cults cause wow those are two very wildly different questions chris great um one second all right Thank you for your patience as I wet my whistle here. I do not listen to Beck. I don't like his music. Sorry, I know. Some of y'all might be upset by that, but I don't like his music. Never have. I'm happy that he's out of Scientology now, but I don't like his music. Now, does shame play a role in the psychological damage that cults cause? Absolutely. Of course it does. In about a thousand different ways. Hindsight bias plays into this hard, which is why I talk about that uh, from time to time, right? We look back on our past actions and misdeeds and we judge ourselves as though we could have done something different when in that moment at that time there was nothing different we could have done. That's why we did what we did. We did what we did because we didn't have anything else we could have done. I really hope that gets across to people because it's an important piece of information that you really need to accept as true because it's it's, it is true. There isn't anything else you could have done. There might be in your imagination, you might imagine other paths you may have taken. But in the moment of the decision making that you made, that was, that was the only choice you had. 
And when we hold ourselves accountable for making wrong choices as though we could have made a different one, we do ourselves a disservice. What we need to do instead is look more at, okay, well, what compelled me or impelled me to make that decision? What were the influences and factors there? And how do I prevent that from happening again in the future if I don't want a repeat of that performance? That's how you deal with it. You don't go and go, oh, I'm such a horrible, awful, evil person, and I can't believe I did that. And I'm so, there must be something black-hearted and evil about me. Don't, don't even do that. It doesn't help anybody, especially you. That's not how you deal with past you know, misdeeds and stuff. Um, so that's part of how shame, that feeling of shame, that emotion, or actually group of emotions, if I understand it right, because um, there's guilt and there's, and there's self-blame and there's other things mixed into that. Um, that's how that works on you. And, and we are, some of us are super skilled at shaming ourselves into practical non-existence. And it's always a bad idea to do that. It's never helpful or useful to do that. It is very helpful and useful to recognize what you've done in the past that was wrong or that you disagree with now or that violated your moral foundations or somehow hurt or abused other people and, uh, or created bad effects or bad consequences. It's, there's, it's perfectly natural, perfectly normal to go back, examine that behavior, determine not to do it again or determine what you need to change to not let that happen again or put yourself in that circumstance again, uh, like say in the case of addicts or something, right? Get yourself out of that situation. Put Change up your life, right? Because the, the, the circumstances of your life put you into that bad place, right? So get yourself out of that. Um, Anyway, that all has a lot to do, that, that shame factor has a lot to do with the damage that cults cause because people will carry that around no matter how often I tell them not to. Um, the other way that this reflects in the here and now is a negative self-image, negative self-talk, where we will, excuse me, shame ourselves, blame ourselves, guilt ourselves all day, every day. I suck, I'm horrible, I... I, 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 I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough, you know, the sort of anti-Stuart Smalley thing that we do to ourselves on the daily, right? We do that all the time. And um, that can, over time, if you keep doing that as a habit to yourself, you are creating neural pathways that reinforce that thinking. Doing it to yourself. Right? The cult did it to you for so long. You leave the cult. Now you're doing it to yourself. Right? You can get counseling. You can get education. You can get therapy. You can work that out. But at the end of the day, you can get all the counseling, therapy, and education that you can get. But you've got to make that decision. This has to stop. I need to stop being my own worst enemy. Right? Benson's making noises again. Hey, buddy. <laughs> All right. So, um, so that negative self-talk, that shame that you lay on yourself, right, can be can go on way too long, and uh, and be damaging to yourself. Yes, that can that can definitely be good. And I say damaging. In other words, it's just not doing you any good, right? I'm not saying you're gonna you know put yourself in the ground or something, but then again. You know, it's happened. I mean, people can get so down on themselves that they just push themselves down into depressive episodes, keep themselves there, 
and end up self-harming and stuff. And we don't want any of that. We do not want any of that. So, um, so it's a, it's a bad habit to break to be doing that. Okay. And, uh, I think I've definitely over answered that one. So <laughs> I'll carry on. Um, all right, let's see here. I get asked this a lot. This is an interesting one. Uh, Desire. Hey, Chris, I recently watched a documentary about the Buddha field cult called Holy Hell. Have you heard of this cult? And if so, what are your thoughts on it as compared to Scientology? Um, I, I've, I've discussed this a few times. It's, it's a bad cult, right? This guy uh, who ran Buddha field was a real dick. It was not anything. It was, it was so Scientology light. I mean, he barely really did much of anything except run a network of secrets. He was so good at that. You know, he had everybody's secrets and he ran the confessional and that was basically his number one mode of control was was uh, was was um, bringing people in, getting their secrets, sexually engaging with them but keeping it all on the down low, right? Nobody could know. And he was doing this with everybody and nobody was talking to each other. And it was quite insidious. I mean, that's not a low level of control. I don't mean to imply that he was some lightweight. It's just it was um, it was one guy pulling this off and keeping these people in a very captive state for many, many years. But it all fell apart so quickly once the truth, once the dam broke on what he was up to. And, and one person said something and suddenly, oh, my God, and it all collapsed very, very quickly after that. So his system was not... That's what I mean. It wasn't like this, you know, hardcore system that like Hubbard developed, which was sort of, I guess you could say the, the Buddha field guy's name is not coming Jaime. Uh, I guess Jaime had what would be, what would have been, had he been craftier and more determined to fortify or more heavily organize what he was doing he could have put a Scientology-like ethics system in place that would have locked it in harder and made it harder for the members to talk to each other or find out, as they eventually did, what was really going on. If he'd put some kind of system in place that had been more, you know, titanium steel than kind of more balsa wood is, uh, is kind of how I look at it. I, I Maybe that's not a great analogy but i just don't see that he put a system in place that was quite as um strong that's the word i keep coming back to uh as hubbard did you know that's my that's sort of my comparison on those two things at least off the top of my head right now uh yeah that's what i'll say about that good good question though thank you for asking that um okay great <laughs> uh, this is a good question. Leslie asks, Chris, how different are the daily functions or requirements of Sea Org staff back in the 60s and 70s compared to more recent years? The reason that's a good question is because the, the early years, the 60s and 70s time period of the Sea Org are establishment years where they were working their asses off, establishing the boats, right, setting them up, figuring out how to run them, and running them. For years, they were out on the water. And then 
setting up Scientology management structures. There were about four or five different iterations and revisions of how Scientology was operated internationally from the boats during the early years and through the 1970s of the Sea Org until they finally in the 80s came up with the system that they have in place now, which has pretty much stood in place since then. But all the formative years of the 60s and 70s and early 80s were this very tumultuous time for the Sea Org, and it was a wilder, crazier, loosier, goosier kind of operation. Um, there were not as many rigid rules. People were a little bit more frontier-like. They were a little bit wilder. They could get away with more. They were more extreme in their views about, you know, I mean, if you look at Captain Bill Robertson, you Google that guy. <laughs> Um, and that was a head. That, this guy was a was a was a captain of one of the boats of the Sea Org. I mean, this the Bill Robertson was a was a power figure in the Sea Org, and he was nuts. I mean, as nuts as you can get nuts. And yet, here was a guy who was in charge and making things happen. Um, so it was a it was a wilder time, right? And now, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, it started getting locked down, a lot more strict, a lot more enforcement of sexual conduct, and, and, and a lot more, if you can imagine, more KRs, more knowledge reports being written, more spying on each other, a lot more of a ruthless, uh, authoritarian sort of flavor to how the organizations were run. Uh, the whole, for example, and the manifestation of physical abuses as, as, a, as a sort of dogmatic practice from Miscavige, right, from the top. And it rolled all the way down and made all of Scientology kind of this corrupted, cruddy, like awful place to want to work or be because it was just so nasty all the time. That was kind of Miscavige's version of the Sea Org and, and still is in so many ways. So, um, so that's kind of how I see the differences. You know, I mean, daily functions, the same kind of work was being done just in different contexts, you know, um, except for the ocean-going stuff. I mean, you still have that on the free winds in terms of actually running a boat. That was pretty different in the early days of the Sea Org with the boat stuff, right? But other than that, other than the, the running boats, the, the flavor and culture of the Sea Org has been pretty pretty much the same throughout just different uh yeah different levels of wildness to it i guess is how i would summarize that i don't know if that communicates well but that's kind of how i think about it um oh evelyn simon yeah missed a bit of the live uh do you have plans to update us on multi-level marketing schemes yes i do absolutely there will be coverage of mlms multi-level marketing um on this channel uh, in the future. In fact, I have an interview in the queue on my podcast with a woman who does anti-MLM work. Her name is Elaine. And uh, that podcast will go up in the next week or two. So you'll be hearing a little bit about MLM stuff there. Uh, just a little bit, though. There, I want to do more with that. And I definitely, definitely am making connections with people in the anti-MLM community because um, that is something that needs to be talked about a lot more. And I want to do that uh, here. Okay. <laughs> oh, hey, Joe. Um, good questions here. 
<laughs> yes, very mysterious. Uh, what's that mysterious book in front of you? Thank you, Joe, for giving me a chance to pimp my work here. So this is my book, Scientology A to Xenu. You can see it on the screen. I, this is a book I wrote about the subject of Scientology. And if you are curious, if you're actually curious, what is Scientology? What makes it work? Why is it put together the way it is? Who is L. Ron Hubbard? All of that, like all of it, all of it, it's in there. All the OT level stuff up through OT7, I've detailed in detail. Like there's no other place anywhere where it's broken down like it is in here. So I hope you'll check that out. And there are even three chapters at the end on cult recovery. And then, of course, uh, thank you, Joe. If you are seeking some help, so you want somebody to listen, somebody to understand, somebody to help guide, whatever, you know, uh, coercive control, post-cult stuff, culty questions, anything like that, you can contact me for personal consultation. I am more than happy to connect with you uh, and make that happen. All right. Thanks, Joe, for that. All right. Um, yes, XCIN asks, will your tone scale episode include the difference between social tone and real tone? Yes, I believe that that is absolutely covered uh, in that video. Yes, in that, in that work will do. Um, I don't know. Stuart asks here, how were the CST locations chosen? Petrolia is probably the most seismically active place in the U.S., not great for the long term. That's a great question. I don't know how they were chosen except for the fact that they were looking for remote locations. Way off grid, way off the map, obviously. Um, seismic activity, not sure if they took that into account. Given how many years these folks have been working on this and how much money they have spent on it, and how detailed their planning is, it surprises me to hear that, to be honest with you. But, yeah, I mean, wow. If they built one of the vaults in, a, in an earthquake active area, that was really, really stupid of them. Uh, don't know what to say to that one. Yeah, I wish I knew how they went about it because that might help predict where else they might build some, you know, because three, the three or four or five that they've built – that doesn't necessarily mean that that's all they're doing, just as an idea, right? Okay. Oh, I don't know. I've never heard of this one, uh, Joe. There's a Chick Korea album, The Greatest Adventure, which is apparently inspired by LRH Works with songs called Moseb the Executioner, Flight from Karuf, Three Ghouls. Any idea which one? No. I, none of those sound familiar to me. Um, I'm not familiar w with a lot of Hubbard's fiction works. I know the main ones. I've, I know the highlight ones. But, um, and, and Karuf sounds vaguely like a Hubbardarian name for something, but don't know. Can't answer that one. Sorry, Joe. What are the food rations on the RPF's RPF? Now, that one I can't answer. Um, basically the same, what my experience of it was that it was the same as what the RPF got. We, the RSR would set up the main mess for the RPF and, um, to sort of facilitate the RPF. Uh, 
set up the table, stuff like that. If there weren't enough people on the RSR, which there often weren't, then the RPF ended up setting up the, the, the tables and everything. But we all got food out of the same place. It wasn't um, the galley. It was second servings for us, basically. Like, in other words, we didn't get... We didn't get scraps off the tables of what other people had eaten. It was never that. I know there have been times in the Sea Org past when it was like that, but it wasn't like that for me. Um, we got served galley food, but it would be the last of the food, and so it would often not be enough food for all of us. You know, we might need three or four trays of food, and we get two. Right? So, you know, distribution would be interesting sometimes when it came to getting food that's uh but the food that we were served was the same food that everybody else got in terms of if it was burger tuesday we had burgers if it was chicken for everybody we had chicken right it was that kind of thing yeah although often when you got this last of the of the of the things you wouldn't necessarily get you know fries <laughs> with the burgers <laughs> <laughs> or they were all cold and gross, right? I mean, it was that kind of thing. I'm laughing about it just because I'm trying to make light of it, but it was fucking awful. I mean, it really did suck. Um, yeah, so that's 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 how we were fed. Uh, were any children sent to the RPF? Yes, children were sent to the RPF. Um, I was on the RPF with... Was I... You think carefully here. I can't recall there being minor children, people under 18, on the RPF with me when I was on from 2005 to 2008 or 9, right, that time period. I did not see children there. There were certainly young people, but not, not kids. Earlier in the RPF's history, there have been children on the RPF. Children as young as you know, 10, 11 years old. Uh, on the ship, there were children sent to the RPF. <laughs> uh, this is a good question. Do you think the dialogue in those new superhero movies is so bad because they're using AI to generate them because they want to churn out a million movies the same? You know, that thought has absolutely occurred to me. Um, it might as well be, because I'll tell you, the stuff they're churning out is really bad. Ugh. You know, I said on Friday, and I was, I was kind of happy with myself about saying this. I've never heard anybody say this before. I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have, and I'm sure the concept exists, but I've never heard it before. And I was really happy to say this, that to describe art, good art, really good art, art that connects, as... A representation of you that somebody else makes and puts out there. You know, you see yourself in the art. Paintings, writing, whatever. And I, that's been gone out of these movies for, like I said, for like the last 10 years. And that's, and that's a majority of people are reacting that way. That's not just my opinion. Th you know, the numbers and the, and the feedback show it. So whoever they're making these movies for or whatever this is supposed to represent, it's not the majority of people out there. And that's, at the end of the day, the, the kind of the bottom line with success or failure of, of movies in a, in a lot of ways. Okay. Oh, yeah. 
Joe DiCepo, great question. I'm sure we agree that Helena Madame Blavatsky was a fraud, but do you think she created the modern template or proto-structure for many cults? Yes, she did, through propagating what she did. Um, you guys, if you have not checked out uh, years ago, and maybe I should circle back around on this one because it's worth revisiting. I did, I've done about two or three podcasts with a guy named Joe Zimhart about Madame Blavatsky, and we have gone deep. And if you guys haven't checked those out, I can't recommend them highly enough. If you really want to understand why New Age exists, why cults thrive on New Age principles and spirituality and the secret and all of this, these, these sort of philosophy points that these cults thrive on, Scientology as well, this manifestation of your will and your intent. And if you just think the right thoughts, your life will somehow go right. This kind of thinking, magical thinking, um, spiritualism, thetans, body thetans, like so many of these concepts come out of Madame Blavatsky's writings and her writings are plagiarized writings of thousands of years of of work that she got, went back and took and made her own and just like Hubbard did I think she wrote like this 5,000 page book or something and, and Joe's read it so he read it so we don't have to <laughs> and he breaks it down and describes what she was doing and how everything that's going on in terms of so many cultic activities in, Western, in the Western worlds, um, all through the 1900s and 2000s, comes from her work. She was a real sort of nexus, crossroads of spiritual, culty stuff. And, it, and, it, and if you don't know who she is and the part she played in the bigger picture of our religious and spiritual evolution in the in western nations then you you're missing a gigantic piece of the puzzle and a, and a lot of things make a lot more sense in our society from my perspective after learning about all that so um so check out those podcasts and like i said i'll have to give uh, joe a ring and see if we should do something more with that okay uh, final question here in the queue. Will Tony Ortega be at the opening of the, um, what is this? Of the Dallas Org next week. Uh, I don't think so because he's traveling or on vacation this week. And in fact, I was going to tell y'all, um, he and I are not getting together to do a, um, after Scientology straight up and vertical this week. So, um, so I will not be with him this week to do that. And I wanted to ask you guys, since I have you in the chat here, um, I was going to skip it this week because I didn't think y'all would want me to do that show by myself and kind of review all of his articles on my own. It's so much better when he and I talk about them. But I was sort of thinking about maybe trying to do some other sort of makeup live stream or something during the week for that. We'll have to see how that plays out. Um, anyway, so that's what I understand uh, about that. Okay, so, wow. Well, here we are at two hours, and we've answered all the questions. I've answered the ones from the pre-queue, and uh, I think we're pretty good. Um, there we go. So I think we're going to start moving toward wrapping up. Let me see if there's anything else 
I need to... Nope, okay. Good, I think we'll wrap up. <sighs> There's your extended length critical Q&A for this week. I hope it was useful, helpful, informative, educational, entertaining, all the above. Um, yeah, okay. I think we'll, I think we'll, uh, I think we'll wrap up on that. And I hope that, um, I haven't given, uh, anyway, I just hope these were good answers. All right. And on that happy note, guys, um, I'll see you soon. I won't see you tomorrow. No after Scientology straight up and vertical, but we will see each other again soon. All right. Stay tuned. Bye-bye.